Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today we are talking to the creator of a new RTE series, which I really think you are going to enjoy. It's called The Dry. It's by Nancy Harris and it looks at addiction, dysfunction and something familiar to many of us, the messy Irish family where everyone has something they want to hide. What I love about Ireland is is that family means so much to us, but we all have struggles within our families and there are joy and our pain. And I one of the things I really wanted to try and look at was as long as love exists, you can kind of survive any dysfunction. I mean, it's kind of the thing that trumps all. That was Nancy Harris there, the writer of The Dry, and we're going to be hearing more from her in a moment. But first, we just wanted to say a huge congratulations to Holly Kearns, who this week became the new leader of the Social Democrats. At a time when women still only have 22% representation in the Dáil, it's heartening to see a woman, another woman, lead a political party and we pay tribute to to the women she's replacing, Roisin Shortall and Catherine Murphy. Whether you are a man or a woman, leading a party is a challenging job and we want to wish Holly Kearns the best of luck in her new role. Hopefully she'll come in and talk to us at some point on her vision for the party and for the country. And I just wanted to read a bit from her maiden speech. She was outlining how she joined the Social Democrats just five years ago while campaigning for a vote to liberalise our abortion laws in the 2018 Eighth Amendment referendum. She said, some will say I am too inexperienced for this job. To them, I say I have plenty of experience. I grew up on a small dairy farm in West Cork. I worked as a waitress through school and college. I had to emigrate after the crash. I worked in disability services and saw the transformative difference that proper services can make to disabled people's lives. I have a master's in science and I have a small business with my amazing mum. I may not fit the stereotype of a politician, but that is not a bad thing. Let's not forget that some of the most experienced politicians in the Dáil bankrupted the country a little over a decade ago. So that was Holly Kearns in her maiden speech this week and we wish her all the best. Now, today, we are talking to Nancy Harris, the playwright and the author of a new RTE series called The Dry. It stars Roisin Gallagher as Shiv Sheridan, who returns to Dublin from London after years of partying. And she's sober now and full of good intentions. But being back with her family makes staying on the dry much harder than she expected. As Shiv tries to navigate this new phase of her life, so must her family and they all have issues they don't want to face. The Dry also stars the brilliant Kieran Hines and Mo Dunford, and it's directed by Paddy Brannock, and it's from the producers of Normal People and Conversations with Friends. 
The series has just gone on RT Player last night if you are fond of a binge or you can watch it week by week. Uh, it's by Nancy Harris, as I said, an award-winning playwright and screenwriter with plays such as Our New Girl and Dates. And she is our guest today. So I think you're going to enjoy this interview. It goes to a few different places. And I began by asking Nancy why addiction was something that she wanted to tackle in her writing. I wanted to write about it because it was something that had affected my life, I suppose, in the short way um, of putting it. I'm from a family, and when I say family, I mean immediate family, extended family on both sides, where there was quite a lot of addiction, specifically to do with alcoholism. And luckily, I would say, a lot of sobriety and recovery. And so that was kind of my first encounter with it. But then also... I've had friends in the grip of addiction. I've been in relationships with people who are in active addiction. And I've had, you know, very close friendships with people whose parents were were very seriously addicted. And so in a way, it's been, it's come into my life in in lots of different ways and lots of different relationships. And it felt like a subject that was always examined in one way and not kind of holistically, because when, specifically if you're from a family where there is alcoholism, everyone in the family is affected and it might not necessarily be directly. And it just felt to me like there was a very rich opportunity to look at a family and look at drinking and look at addiction in in a lot of different ways. And so that was kind of the start. And what about you yourself? Have you, it sounds like you've been surrounded by a lot, but you've managed to not not succumb to it yourself. Well, I think when it's in your family, I mean, I definitely have, I'm not an alcoholic, but I have definitely had periods where I've worried about my drinking and I gave up drinking for a year because I didn't want to be drinking. Um, and I think when it's in, when it's close to you, you can't but, but worry. I think, I don't know many, I mean, I actually don't know many people who haven't had some brush with addiction in their life, but I also know that we all have times where we maybe rely on drinking as a crutch or, and so when I gave up for that year, it was a very insightful year. I was single and, you know, going on dates and not drinking was really challenging because within a second, p- people want to ask you why you're not drinking. And so I thought, well, that's, you know, it's one thing for me to be doing, you know, from for not as somebody with a serious drinking problem. But what is it like for somebody who really is on that journey to sobriety? And, you know, it's it's a, and so I wanted to kind of look at all those things in the show. Well, I have to tell you, I watched the first three episodes of The Dry last night and I demolished most of a bottle of wine on a Tuesday <laughs> night while watching The Dry, which actually I would recommend to anybody, even though it's about addiction, though I did find myself catching myself with a glass of wine. It is one of the most enjoyable things that I've watched in a long time. I laughed. I thought it was so clever and funny. And I just, I, I really wanted to say that to you, first of all, what an incredible achievement. I know you've worked with Element and the actors in it are brilliant, but as a script and as a story and those characters, it is fantastic. So I just wanted to say Thank that to you, so you, first much, of all. Thank you so much, Roisin. And also, I don't think you'd be the only person... I'm sure I've watched an episode with a glass of wine in my hand, do you know what I mean? <laughs> no, there's no shame here. It's quite enjoyable. <laughs> but I think going back to it, I mean, uh, Shiv is the central character. She's this woman, young woman in her 30s who comes back from London, um, having kind of had this quite dysfunctional life with alcohol, has been given up for six months, arrives back to the granny's, uh, the granny has died and she's going to the wake. And she lands into a family who is not used to her not drinking, who is used to her being this very dysfunctional person 
person that borrows money and leaves a trail of destruction in her wake. And they have to navigate this new shift. But meanwhile, they all have their own issues as well. So you're dealing with a kind of very uh, typical, maybe Irish family where nobody's totally normal and everybody's kind of hiding stuff and everyone's trying to uh, deny things. So you you mentioned your big sprawling family and all the different things. Was that something exciting for you to work with, to kind of look at the Irish family particularly? Totally. That was what I wanted to look at. And I, I feel I should say it's not autobiographically based, but I think we all have common themes. And, and one thing I would say about my family and, the, and the, the amount of sober people in the family is that they didn't all get sober in the same way. And this was something very interesting to me because my grandparents' generation were very Catholic, very conservative, huge, huge drinkers. And, you know, they didn't believe in sex before marriage and they certainly didn't believe in divorce, but they were able to have a drink. And then their kids came along and a lot of them went into recovery. Some of them wanted to kind of talk through the steps and do that. And this did not go down well. And also it was kind of like, are they making a bit of a song and dance about it? I mean, you know, can they not just have a drink? And if they don't have a drink, do we have to talk about them not having a drink? And so that was one side of it. And then the other side was within the people that had got sober. Some people just said, look, I was drinking too much. I'm I'm an alcoholic. Like they all call themselves alcoholics. They were very open and owned it. But they would say, the problem is drink. I'll just take the drink out of the equation and the problem is solved. And then other members of the family would go, no, that's only the beginning. Like you take the drink out and then you've got to feel the feelings and look at why you were drinking. Look at all the terrible things you did. Look at the shame, look at the lies. And that's what recovery takes you through, like the behaviours of an addict. And so they would feel the people who had just given up were dry drunks and the people who'd given up would look at them and think they're just narcissists who want to go into a room and talk about themselves. And there was all these different permutations within even the sober and the alcoholic and watching all this and also then having to go on my own journey about being in relationship to addicts and what that means and how that affects you. I thought this is really rich. There's no one way into this subject. It's so meaty. And and it also it's a it's bigger than just addiction. It's about who we are in our families, how we tell the truth of ourselves. And I just felt that's it's the hardest place to be yourself is your family in a way. That's a really, really good point. I mean, there's a big scene in episode four, which I haven't seen, but I've heard about, which is which is sort of uh, it's indicated in, in episode three where they have a big family meeting that Siobhan um, kind of calls because she wants to talk about the issues that they're all almost like an, an intervention and it kind of taps into that idea of Irish people being very uncomfortable with being open with one another and um, particularly maybe the older generation who find yes. it hard to get into yes. that language of therapy and to talk about those the steps as you said and all of that thing is that something you kind of find intriguing and interesting? Yes I mean Paddy Brunach the director the brilliant director of it and we were chatting is he he put it really brilliantly that it kind of you know, because when someone's in recovery, it's a tentative journey, you know, and and um, she's able to talk the talk. She's got all the language, but she's not done the work yet. And that's where the sponsor, her sponsor, Karen, who's like really straight talking, is kind of there to be like, no, you know, you, it's not enough just to say you're doing it. You have to do it. And so she's still in the in the phase of of her of kind of wanting everybody to do what she's doing. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've a friend, somebody goes into therapy and then they want to, you know, have a big debrief about what's gone on and it may not be appropriate for everybody. And and part of really doing recovery work is figuring out what's appropriate for everybody. And 
you don't just dump. So she kind of comes in and insists that everybody gets honest and they're not ready for that honesty. And it actually ends up exploding the family in slightly. There is a lot of different kinds of uh, family dysfunction in in the show, I think. And one of them is like the breakdown of sexual relationships as well. Why did you find that uh, something you wanted to explore? Well, I just wanted to explore everything. I mean, I feel like in a way... Because <laughs> it does have everything in it, really, doesn't it? It the, does. The show. <laughs> yeah, in a way, alcoholism, I wanted to be honest about addiction and try and tell it the complexity of it as honestly as possible. But I also, from everybody's angle, like from just even the brothers and sisters, but I felt like the, really that sex, well, there's two kind of stories with sexuality, but the biggest one is probably the sister, Caroline, who's you know, been in a long-term relationship with her boyfriend since her leaving search and they're just not sleeping together. And what that really was about for me was in a family, Shiv is the troublemaker and often the scapegoat and is, you know, a lot of stuff gets landed on her. But she takes up a lot of attention and space as well. And, you know, I know in families when, you know, when there's addiction or something like that, it happens. And the rest of them who may not have a label for their particular pain or struggle are not getting that attention. And so Caroline is the high achiever. She's Miss Perfect. She's kind of compensated for all the dysfunction in the family, but she's quite divorced from her own desires and her own needs. And she isn't really able to speak what she needs. And so she kind of has quite a big storyline there with what's happening in her sex life and and um, and how that kind of moves through the series as the family start to unravel. I was thinking as I watched it of Bad Sisters, actually, Sharon Horgan's show and and that kind of really uh, truthful, I think, depiction of Irish families. And I feel the dry has a lot in common with that in, you know, we, we've kind of got used to seeing a stereotypical view of Irishness or a kind of old fashioned um, sort of idea. And I love the fact that there's these programs now that are kind of really more relatable and recognisable and they're not shying away from the kind of more quirky aspects of of, of families here. No, and I think I mean I think what I what I love about Ireland is is that family means so much to us. But we all have struggles within our families and there are joy in our pain. And I one of the things I really wanted to try and look at was that that as long as love exists, you can kind of survive any dysfunction. I mean, it's kind of the thing that trumps all. But this so in a way this family that's very troubled. And I think in the early episodes, you're not sure if you really like them. And then I was like, can we understand them? Even if you don't like people, can you understand them? That's the key. And um, and so I felt like that was the, that was the story. I wanted to give everybody their own space, not just the alcoholic, not just the addiction, but actually people who, who seemed to be perfect, who, who aren't, and, and the parents even. So it, it, that felt, it felt important to me that we were across age, because I think that's the richness of of family is that no one is from the same family in a family. Oh, absolutely. And going back to the alcohol, because I think what, what the what the dry does very well is shows us how how it's impossible to escape in Ireland, really. And maybe it's like that in other countries. Maybe I shouldn't just say Ireland, but from the very opening, when Shiv arrives back at the airport and she's waiting at the airport, and they've, the family have forgotten to collect her. And there's a guy at nine o'clock in the morning drinking his pint of Guinness. So she's immediately faced with the, that, that kind of thing. And then there's the wake with all the drink. And then there's an ex sniffing around her and he associates her with red wine and he's bought her a really expensive bottle of it. So it's all, it really does, it, like someone who's trying to kind of give it up is faced almost like you know, several times a day. Yeah. Yeah. And in the, in the show, 
we just have it there, like in the background of scenes all the time. And, you know, the casualness of it and the fact that it's just not even really it's it's not even seen. And yet for some people, it is a loaded gun. And and, you know, and while we obviously are, have, are you know, being humorous about it, it's not that I don't think addiction is extremely serious and I haven't seen the out the out the fallout of it in the most extreme ways. But it felt like that idea of just trying to do something like stay sober can be so challenging in, in how in how we exist. Yeah. I have to say, listening to you, Nancy, what I'm getting from you and from the programme is that you have this really amazing ability to observe people, relationships, humanity, the things that make people tick and how they operate. And obviously, as a writer, that's that's what you do. I'm just interested in from when you were younger, when you were growing up. Do you, do you always find yourself like that, um, observing or imagining uh, stories? Yes. Um, yeah. So I'm like the super youngest. I'm 12. There's 12 years between me and my sister. So we're kind of both only children and also, but I've you know, if she crosses the road, I'll cross the road because that's, you know, <laughs> that's what you do when you're a younger sister. And um, we're very close, but we, you know, it, it we had those, it, there is that big age gap. And I think when you're the youngest, you just tend to listen and observe. And and also both my parents worked when I grew was growing up, which was unusual in kind of the 80s, the mid 80s and 90s. At that time, economically, people didn't all have to whereas they probably do now but I used to be looked after by other people's families and so I was a lot of the time I was in other people's families as maybe the child that the other children necessarily didn't particularly want in their family and I observed I observed those families too and so I became really interested in dynamics in what people don't say I saw some kind of very unhappy families and I saw some happy ones and they all were different to my family and our particular happiness or unhappiness. And so it was, it just, it just became, I suppose, because you're learning to survive in environments when you're a child, you, it was a, a way of, of surviving, but also it became what I do for a living. And your parents, we should mention, are very prominent journalists. Anne Harris, who sometimes writes for the Irish Times, very brilliantly. I love her columns and Owen Harris. And they split amicably um, when you were younger. So you also had that kind of having two homes and two places to go as a, as a person growing up. Yeah, and I feel I was really lucky because they were always very open about everything that was going on. And um I don't think they ever hid anything, you know, and so I think that's the key with any with any, you know, it was we were it was unusual to separate at that time. People didn't. And, you know, it it was it, it was obviously challenging in different ways. But I feel like as long as there's honesty, I mean, and in a way, that's kind of what the dry is saying when there isn't honesty, the things become twisted and dark. But they were very upfront and open. And I feel very lucky and and very privileged in a way to to have come from a family where where things were difficult things were talked about and tell me about your path to writing because having two um very prominent media figures as parents right so newspapers or journalism might have been a way that you would have gone down but you didn't go that direction necessarily and yet writing was very much something that you gravitated towards so were, were you always writing essays at school or where did you kind of first realised that writing was something you wanted to do? I actually, I, I think um, I really didn't want to be a writer because my parents were writers and I felt really boxed in and I didn't want it and I didn't like it. And I probably was a little bit um, sullen about that kind of thing. And so in a way I didn't, um, I did. I wrote 
voraciously and constantly as a child it, to myself, but I wasn't a very good essayist because I think you. I was always aware that you couldn't really write truthfully. You couldn't be re- writing about sex in a school essay or any of the things that I might have been interested in writing about. So I, I didn't. <laughs> I wasn't particularly good. I just wrote my own stuff at home. And then... Um, I came to it because I went to drama to study drama because it was the only thing I liked and drama and classics because I had a brilliant classical studies teacher called Mary Diwali and um, she was really inspirational to me. And so I I either felt I was going to be a classics teacher or I was going to do something with drama. And um, it was through that that I kind of came to playwriting. And it's weird because, you know, my dad was a playwright, he was a screenwriter. It wasn't that it was unknown, but I didn't think, I just had rejected it so much that I didn't want to go down that road. And I kind of had to find my own way to it. And you went to study drama in Trinity, was it? Yeah. What What was that like? Because that was one of my dreams when I was younger. I, that, I don't think I got, I got at the audition, but I didn't get the points or something. Oh no, but yeah, I the points think, were high. Yeah, they were high. Because I thought you'd just be able to go and it's different with the Lear now, I think, you know, you can kind of just go, yes. go into that. No, they drop. Actually, they dropped the year I got in. So I think that's how I got in. Okay, thanks Nancy, yeah. you're making me feel better. <laughs> What was it like to study drama in Trinity? It sounds like amazing. It was very academic and I have great friends from that time and I I really enjoyed it. There were some amazing, um, inspiring lecturers and professors, but I think I was a little bit intimidated and I'm I'm actually not that extroverted as a person. So I I found it a bit overwhelming and... um, you know, the people who were brilliant kind of really shone really quickly. And I think it took me longer. You know, it's I found the thing that I like doing, which is basically sitting at home alone, writing and then giving it to people, which was sort of the opposite of what we were doing, but actually is quite a key part of 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 theatre and plays. So um, it was great. But it, it I think if you're if you were a little bit shy or a little bit, you know, nervous or you know, as I, I think I probably was, or maybe people didn't think that, but I felt it. Um, but I found playwriting at the end and that kind of set me on a path then. So I was lucky. I found it early. And just going back to your parents and that kind of, re- kind of resistance to going into what they, they were going into, was there also kind of, once you did decide to go that way, an expectation and a pressure on yourself? Like, no. what if I can't do this? Or um, Oh, well, I have that anyway, not from them. I mean, they would have really been delighted if I was a vet or anything. You know, they were, they've all, they're very encouraging. But I, um, me, yeah, like, to, like, I think, what if I was a total failure or I can't do it? And I think there's also for anybody, maybe you've found this, when you mm. write something, you actually have no idea if you can do it again. Or And I still yeah. don't know I can do it again. I think that keeps you on your toes, though, doesn't it? And it keeps that adrenaline going. It keeps the adrenaline going, but there's always that moment where you're like, did I just fluke that? And that's what happened to me in college. I wrote a, a play um, in my final year because I had to make up for dropping out of a subject. And I I actually kind of didn't even know how I did it. And so then I felt like, well, that could have been a terrible accident. So I think I better learn how to do this properly. And actually, you, you don't have to learn how to be a playwright. You just have to, but, you know, I don't think you necessarily have to go and study or anything. But it helped me because it helped me grow in, in confidence, which I... And you went to Birmingham to study? Yeah, I went to Birmingham. Because there probably wasn't... Was there anywhere to study playwriting in Ireland? At, at the Not time? Maybe a, there isn't now. Is there now? Anywhere? There is now, yeah. I think there's a few courses. And I think there's a lot of really interesting young playwrights coming up now, which is great. Um, and I think much more interest and access for them, for their voices to be heard. But I think at that time, there wasn't a huge interest 
and there wasn't anywhere you could study. So my lecturer in playwriting had recommended me to go to Birmingham. And it was it was just brilliant, you know, because I just was reading all these plays I'd never heard of, these writers, lots of women who I'd never heard of. Um, and it was brilliant. And so when did you, how did just a sort of synopsis of how you got from college then to actually having your plays put on? Because that's the dream, I suppose. And you have been quite successful uh, and and getting um, good good shows put on in the gate. Like Our New Girl was a big hit and got a four star review from Peter Crawley, which is not something a lot of people can say. He's quite harsh. Um, Well, how did it just sheer, just the banality of actually just writing plays and sending them out. My first proper um commission if you like was with the Soho Theatre and um in London and what they did was they they it, it was it's interesting because there's a lot of cuts going on here at the moment and a lot of those kind of new writing groups are probably getting cut and I think that's a real shame because I wouldn't have been able to start so they basically had every year they took six writers and they we became a resident writer in the theatre and I sent them two plays and they took me on. And so I spent a year as part of the Soho Theatre and you wrote little plays, short plays. We had things performed. So it sort of got me into the London scene. And then I did a radio play with another writer. We wrote five women's hour plays. And then my first actual play was an adaptation of a Tolstoy novella. And then after that went on, my first original play, No Romance, went on at the Abbey. So it was sort of like a... I had to really learn the craft in different ways to to it was really to in order to get kind of produced it was really hard and once you as a playwright once you're produced then you become producible but it's just really hard to get from unproduced to produced Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds recently I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You were very involved in Waking the Feminists in 2015. And I feel like you kind of have come up around that time and you've been one of those women's names in, in theatre that has has arisen to the fore. And it's so great to see. And like you say, there's many other women coming up as well. Why was uh, Waking the Feminists important for you? Which sounds like an obvious question, but l- tell me how you got involved and what you were, your involvement was. Well, I think, I mean, obviously it started at the Abbey and the fact that women were not being produced on the main stage. But I don't think it was just about the Abbey. I think it was a, a, like a national conversation about actually how women's work was valued in in opposition to men's. And I think it, it kind of spread from the theatre world into the film and television world, where suddenly it was like, are we being held to slightly different standards, that our work is not being seen as as of the same value? And... um you know, 
It's interesting because having started writing in, in the UK, the same questions applied. And there was always this kind of idea that um, women did not write plays that could be put on big stages. They wrote plays about personal things and relationships. And these were not worthy social, political subjects. And that's A, not true. But B, it was about, well, that might be your perspective of the kind of plays it's it's about how you're seeing those plays and the value you're putting on them. And luckily, that's really being blown apart. And also to say that the domestic isn't political is madness. But, um, you know, I think it's very interesting in Ireland. We've all those personal subjects like abortion, you know, they have they are political. And so it was it was just it was it was very interesting. It was all about how we probably look at women's work through a different lens. And actually, we needed to that needed to change. And luckily, it really has. I mean, do you think it has really, you know, sometimes I suppose with these movements, you'd worry that it's superficial or that it's a fashion or something like that. Do you think enough is being done to actually make it so that we'll never go back to the time when when Waking the Feminists happened, where it was really just so glaringly obvious that not enough women's voices were being heard in theatre? I mean, it's really scary, isn't it? You can't, you, you'd like to say no, but then you look at things like what's happening in the States with the rowback of Roe versus Wade. So I don't think you can say anything is never but I think we're in a very different position. You know, we've had Selena Cartmel at the gate and Roshi McBrin's there now and Katrina McLaughlin. At the, and, you know, it's getting people into positions of power can help um, with that. And um, I hope, I really hope it doesn't go back um, because I think it's valuable. I mean, we need men's voices. We need all genders' voices. You know, we need to hear from people because, but what we just, we just weren't hearing from women at all at that point. And it was kind of crazy. I mentioned Our New Girl, which got that amazing four star review in the Irish Times. So well done again. Um, <laughs> but that was interesting because you were tackling a subject there, which I don't think um, is done very much. And that's around whether people should have women particularly should have children or not. And whether they, you know, they get into the situation where they become parents and they find they're not suited to it or all those kind of things. Why were you interested in that subject particularly? And I do think it's really great that you you tackled it because, again, as I said, it's not something that a lot of the time we're told as a society that women, this is your role, you must have children. Even now, even though we're, we think we're much more advanced, it's not. It's like a lot of women get to a point where if I don't do that, I'm a failure. Yeah, absolutely. So I I felt, I thought that it would be really interesting to examine the idea of what happens if you have a child and you realise you've made a terrible mistake. And at the time when I said I wanted to write this, there was a bit of like, but that doesn't happen. Nobody... <laughs> Nobody feels that because you see a child and you instantly fall in love with it. And it wasn't particularly postnatal depression that I wanted to look at because I didn't want to pathologize it. I was like, what if you just didn't? What if you just go, oh, dear God, this was I should. Everything about my life was correct. And I've done this and now I have to go forward. And so the play was about a woman who has an eight year old child and is actually pregnant with her second and was a high powered lawyer and is now at home running an olive oil business and one day in the middle of something a woman turns up an Irish nanny and says your husband has hired me to help you because I hear you're not coping very well and um, into this so the nanny is sort of like the catalyst for this woman kind of unraveling and confessing and it's a story about responsibility and and tough choices and it was a hard play to write because I was going am I asking something that is just so unpalatable and then what do you do and but in a way, it was a. But it, it felt like if you could, I have always believed if you can imagine something, it must be true. And um, 
So it, it, it so it is a very dark play, although she does step up at the end um, to try and find her way through it because for her son. But it is a very um, it's it's a play, you know, about about somebody having because her husband sort of loved her because she was this tough lawyer. And now he's just seeing her as a mother and he kind of doesn't like that anymore. And it was just yeah, it was. Yeah, that was kind of I don't know. <laughs> you said um, you said you write about things that scare you and you don't you don't have children at the moment. But did you sort of think about what you would be as a parent and whether imagine if you had a, a child and then you didn't like the experience? Was that kind of something that was? Yes, thank going you going around for, in your for mind? bringing me back in my. Yes, that was exact. That was well, I mean, I think as a writer, you spend so much time alone and it's so necessary to be alone. And I think I had a real fear of like, what happens if you can't be alone? Because you can't, you know, as I mean, I've watched my sister, I've watched so many close friends. It looks to me a really hard and full on job. And I, I thought, how what happens if I can't do the thing that I love and that I need to do? And so, yes, it came from the fear of of that huge change. And I mean, of course, we've so many examples of amazing writers that have children and they, you know, are totally able to do it. Um, but I still think it was a fear with me and I wanted to look at it. I think yeah, it was worthwhile. Going back to not having children, because I think it's very interesting. We're talking about it more um, in society now uh, about people who, because for some people, some women um, don't have children and they really want them. Other people are very <laughs> happy, but they, you know, we don't believe them sometimes or sometimes they don't get believed. How have you found it um, as a woman and not having children and have you found people making remarks about it or kind of trying to talk about it and, and get into your business about it as if it's something that's up for discussion, which I'm bringing it up for discussion now. So I'm probably being hypocritical, but. Um, no, I haven't. I haven't found that. I don't think, I mean, I think it's, I, I'm still kind of in the middle of my life, so I don't know what it will be later. Um, but I, I haven't found that people have judged, but I do think we, have an expectation that it's something that women I mean I think it's interesting because it's probably for me it wasn't that I didn't want to be a mother it was just that I didn't know that I did want to be and I've always felt that it would be an easier thing to be on one side or the other I mean not like if you want to be and then you can't be then that's a deep pain and if you uh, don't want to be then this, this the question is probably quite simple but I think if you're just unsure or you're fearful that you might not be good at it or you worry, then it, it and also, you know, the other thing is what really used to annoy me going to the doctors and things is people being like, you know, you've left it too late. You're like, well, you want to have a situation where you're with somebody who will help you co-parent. You know, it's not always in, in somebody's choice as to whether they can financially or economically or emotionally be a parent. And so I feel like it's. Yeah, those are all issues. And um, so I think, but for me, it was a it was a question of, I just didn't know either way. It was the driving force wasn't huge either way, but uh, it wasn't that I did, it wasn't that I didn't want to be. Yeah. And speaking of having a, a potential co-parent or whatever, you were in a very, you are married to a scientist. Is that right? Yeah. I was Googling yeah. him earlier. He's a science <laughs> teacher. He's a, te- he's a t- chemistry teacher. Okay. Um, but he has, yeah, a PhD in chemistry. And um, yeah, it's completely the opposite of being a writer. <laughs> so, um, which is really nice. It's really nice to have that in, in my life. And going back to dating while not drinking, what, did you meet him during that period? No, but it's interesting because I said to him, he doesn't, my husband is quite, um, he's a mar- he runs marathons and he's very athletic. Oh my he, God, amazing. Yes, not like me. I'm not <laughs> on any of those things. And um, he, 
but he he's not a big drinker because you know if you're sporty oh yeah effects. and whereas and when I'm I met him I said to him I was telling him about that period of not drinking and he said um I said would you have judged me and he said I think I would have you know I would have thought she's not fun and I remember thinking, but that's ridiculous because we don't even really drink now. And I'm not a big drinker. He's not a big drinker. Um, but so it's actually the idea of it and how what it says about somebody that seems to make it as difficult in the dating world. Um, rather than the actual, because when I gave up drinking, some people had no problem with it. And the people that tended to have a problem with it often had problems themselves. Many of them now don't drink or in recovery. So it's it's interesting. So going back to the dry then, um, the show, which I think people are going to love. Um, how did that come about? Did you did you want to go into writing television? I know you've done some television work before, so it's not the first time. But how did it all happen? It happened because I was working with Element um, on an adaptation for something else. And I thought of this idea. So when I was telling you about all, you know, my family and the different permutations and I had I was kind of I'd done a lot of looking at what I suppose, codependency and things like that in, in relationships years before in my own for myself. And then um, I said I had the idea. I thought this would be a really interesting way to examine family and Irish society and all sorts of things. And so I just mentioned it to I said it to Element, to a producer there called Jenny Scanlon and, and Emma Norton, who's the producer of Normal People. And they really loved it. So they asked me to write up like a page and it came very fully formed. Like it was, I kind of had the characters there pretty early. But then it's been a long journey, Rosh. It was eight years ago that I what? pitched it. Yeah, to RTE. I don't and think people realise that, do they? How these things are in the background so, ticking away. I mean, I was saying to somebody, you know, I really wouldn't want to be making that many more because I'm not going to live that long. Like if it's <laughs> going to be eight, eight years every time I try and think of something. But they... Yeah, it took eight years because of funding, because of money, because of how hard it is. It's a low budget show. Um, and I think it looks, I think Paddy Bernock has done such a brilliant job and Element, to, given that we didn't have a huge budget or anything and the brilliant cast. But it, it was a long um, journey to get it made. Um, but I feel like these things, they they have their time. And we I just feel so ha- lucky to have worked with such an amazing collaborative team and, and a brilliant cast. I really think all of them are so exciting some of them will be familiar faces and some of them are totally unknown and that feels really to 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 bring them to to have them kind of arrive is really is really exciting to me and when when did it film filmed in 2021 so we were still kind so of in the pandemic, pandemic. film shoot yeah so it was a pandemic film shoot and a nine week shoot and there's only one director and there's only one so it's shot in one block which is quite unusual as well there's normally like you know two directors and they split it so it was a it was intense but I think it worked and they shot it quite chronologically as well because of in the because of the journey of an alcoholic I suppose and and Shiv's journey in it so yeah when is it coming out so it all went up on RTE player last night and it will be shown in two episodes every week okay and are you nervous about the reaction yeah I mean you're always nervous about the reaction but I think um I'd rather be nervous about the reaction than not have anything, than not be able to put it out there. And um, I also hope that it is something people like and I feel it connects to them and they feel it's truthful to their experience. You know, I I feel a bit of a responsibility in terms of wanting to tell the truth about, um, about about the experience of recovery and also 
the experience of addiction and um but also to be able to tell a story that is not depressing to watch that feels like it has because I, I you know you know the way when you when you that actually is a joyful experience to to watch but that says that has something to say that's yeah, what I think. it is a really fun watch I have to say it's so entertaining I laughed and it just made me think too but there's a very funny thing where she's almost shopping around for the coolest AA meetings you know where she goes to yeah. one and they're serving <laughs> a vodka uh, rice crispy cakes or something and then another one which is man more down to earth but that ends up being the one that she she needs to be at with the sponsor as you mentioned Karen I think there's a richness to it and there's so much about Irish life in it that it's not just about addiction as well yes. because the family yeah. stuff is really important yeah and I think that was one of the things because I was like it could easily go two down one road and I felt like oh, what is the universal thing and the universal thing in a family is trying to change in a family is really hard because everyone has their role and you're the good one you're the bad one and addicts a lot of times are the scapegoats but what Shiv is you know they often get blamed for everything and very often they're the people that are acting out the darkness in a family you know or something that the family are not acknowledging and the addict through is actually saying look something is wrong here and that's sort of what's happened here is that there's a, a story beyond the alcoholism that is affecting all of them and um and and so Shiv is sort of the acting out of that story in a way. And so what else are you working on now, Nancy? Um, I'm working on... The dreaded on question for Ryan. Dr- I know. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Um, <laughs> I am working on a play and I'm working on a couple of TV things that hopefully don't take eight years to get made, but they might. <laughs> and I'm, I'm aware of that. And what is the play about? The play is um, another sort of play. It's about roles as well. I, obviously, I have a theme. Um, and so I kind of am not, a, it's about kind of families and roles and, um, but it's got a bit more of a, of a meta side to it. So <laughs> you're being very, uh, yeah, that's yes. not telling us too much. It's not telling you too much, but I, uh, yeah, yes, but it's, yeah, I'm kind of in the middle of it. It's always a bit hard when you're in the middle of something. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, just going back to your mother, I know she's a big inspiration to you. And as you said, you know, it was unusual back then to have two parents working at the same time. And also she was such a prominent person in media. She didn't just have any job. She had a really influential job. What about Anne, your mother, um, has been kind of inspiring to you as a, as a writer and as a person? Oh, she's everything is very inspiring. I think um, what inspires me most about her actually is 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 not you know, being a journalist or, you know, even though I think she is, it's more who she is. And she's very, um, she's very unlike the mothers I write, actually, um, which is interesting. Um, she is very, she just lets, she's very able to let people be who they are. And that is a real skill, I think, actually, because so much of the pain in our lives is trying to change people. And um, if you have anyone close to you, if you're like, if you're the partner of an alcoholic or anything else, that's the biggest thing is you have to realise that you can't control or change somebody or or fix them. And she just has that naturally. She's very able to just let you be. And as a parent, that's very helpful because it means that you are accepted. Um, but it isn't just parent. I think she's like that as a sister and as a uh, as a grandmother. And, you know, so that's that's the thing I learned from her. I don't have it. I, I, I do try and change people and I do get myself into all sorts of knots. But I think I think it's a very admirable skill and and maybe makes for a good editor. I don't know. Um, But it is a it's a it's a great life skill. 
And you mentioned codependency there a bit. And I think, again, something I'd like to go into slightly more before we finish is that thing about um, how addiction affects everyone in the family, not just the person who's going through it. And so organisations like Al-Anon and various things like that are really helpful to for people to unpick the um, the effect it's had. So are you are you interested in that? Have you gone through a lot of that yourself and read a lot about it? About yeah, how it affects other people? I have. And um, and I think that those organisations are amazing. And I also think it's something that that isn't talked about very much because the focus can very much be um, on the addict. And it's just that um, which is right. But it's but the interesting thing is codependency. I mean, and alcoholics can have codependency or, or addicts, can, you know, it's kind of one of those things that moves between. But I think. It 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 has uh, it's a, it's quite a tricky it's a tricky topic to talk about because in a weird way, when you're in a relationship to an alcoholic or an addict, you can feel like you're the good person, like they're causing all the problems and you're the good one. But actually, it can lead to controlling behavior, or you know, you're hiding how much they're drinking or manipulating. And actually, so people often when you know, and you it, that's something that you'll see in the dry and bits and pieces. So it can be more insidious, the the codependency and actually um, the desire to the whole thing is about kind of letting go of control and recognizing that we kind of can't control. And that can be very, very challenging. If you're the parent of somebody who's very seriously addicted, it's very hard not to. It almost goes against your instincts. But actually, um, yeah, so so codependency is kind of looking at your own behavior in relationship to 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 that. And how do you think Ireland's relationship with alcohol is evolving? Because there is more a leaning towards, or I, I certainly have I've written about it myself and I've talked to friends who are sort of going into this sober curious and maybe not um, feeling they have alcoholism, but that they don't want to be depending on um, alcohol as much as they do. I mean, I said I, I drank my way through most of a bottle of red wine watching your your uh, mm-hmm. program. And, you know, that's on a Tuesday night, probably not ideal. But um, I've been thinking more about how much, you know, I drink and why I drink and all that kind of stuff. Do you see that in your friends? And do you think Ireland's relationship with alcohol is changing? I do think it's changing, actually. I think um, it is that interesting thing that, it, I mean, my when I think of my grandparents' generation and they, they, they drank and then their children kind of going into recovery and trying to own their alcoholism. And then, you know, my friends, a lot of them, they might not na- name themselves as alcoholics, although some do, but they, um, there is this desire, I think, not to, I, th- I think I th- there is this desire not to drink. And I think there's, now you go into a pub and you can get non-alcoholic you know, wine and stuff, which you didn't used to. So obviously we're all looking at that a little bit, that that it's, you know, how are we drinking and why are we drinking and those kind of questions. So I think it's changing. I mean, I I, I hope, I uh, yeah, I, I suspect it is. I don't know. I haven't done a survey. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I think, I, you know, I think it's just, it's in the ether a bit. And I think your um, series is going to get people having some interesting conversations in families and around the dinner table and in friendship groups as well and make people maybe look a little bit at their own behaviour. And it's not, it isn't just Ireland and it wasn't, no. you know, because I think there can be sometimes a bit of a defensiveness that we all kind of are like, don't, don't say we're alcoholics. And, you know, of course not. But, you know, if you're from a family where there's quite a lot of alcoholics, it's quite nice to admit that they can exist. And, but I think it's something that it, the world over, there's a lot of it here in the UK. There's a lot of it in, you know, anywhere. It's, it's, it's slightly a universal do you think it will get picked up anywhere else? Because when I was watching it, I thought this could go, this could land anywhere, really. I mean, it's about an Irish family, but it's universal topics, I think. It has actually been picked up 
already by it's in America and Canada and Australia. It's fantastic. Yeah. And so um, it has had a bit of a life in those countries. And, and, and I think because it speaks to family, which we all have, and, and addiction, which is more prevalent maybe than we, we realise. And I think it is as well, you know, because people can, you know, we're looking, talking about the most extreme forms of addiction, but there are other ones like work addiction and stuff like that, that um, it's all about ways of, of, of escaping. Yeah, online shopping is a big addiction. Online shopping, yeah. <laughs> and gambling is one that we kind of, I still think it's kind of amazing, the, the gambling advertising and the fact that we normalise that so much. And because that can be hugely destructive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been really great talking to you, Nancy. And I just want to say as well, congratulations on that programme, but on all your success. And I'm dying to see what else you do as well, because I think um, you're definitely leading the way in terms of women's voices in theatre in Ireland and elsewhere. And uh, it's, it's great to see it. So congratulations. Thank you so much. It's really lovely talking to you. That was Nancy Harris there, the creator of The Dry. And as I said, you can binge it all on RTE Player or you can sip it slowly with a double bill once a week on RTE on Wednesday nights. That's it from me. Next week, we're going to be coming to you a day early with our special International Women's Day episode. We'll have edited highlights from our first in-person live event since the pandemic. So do make sure you catch that on Wednesday, March 8th, which is International Women's Day. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan, Aideen Finnegan and me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.